Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week... The federal government pushes pharmaceutical abortions. More than half of all abortions in the United States happen by means of taking a so-called abortion pill. And the culture of death takes on a whole new dimension. Abby Johnson. Now every woman's home is ultimately going to be an abortion facility. While the population of the entire planet is shaped by this. The leading cause of death in 2022 is abortion. Plus... Asian-American students are sidelined as a result of their high test scores. We'll hear from Virginia's attorney general. Because it seems to be in certain areas of the country, the only state-sanctioned form of bigotry is anti-Asian bigotry. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again, wishing you God's best in these early days of the new year. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with the issue of abortion. Last year, we saw what was, without doubt, the most significant development in the cause for life since the Roe decision was released in 1973. The Dobbs decision set a new precedent on abortion. More accurately, it opened 50 new battles, a battle in each state, as well as the federal battle to guarantee abortion on demand in all 50 states. That leads us to what's happening with the Biden administration's Food and Drug Administration. A few days ago, the FDA announced that patients can receive the abortion pill by mail. Then, more recently that retail pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens will now distribute the abortion pill. Pro-life activist Abby Johnson was a guest of my colleague Kevin McCullough on AM570, The Mission, in New York City. To be clear, the president made it a big priority to come out after Dobbs was done and say, well, now we're going to push pharmaceutical abortion everywhere. And so there was all of a sudden this push to make sure these things were available in places that they had not been before. What do we know about the reach of that? What's the calculus with the states? Where are we at with it? Okay, before Roe was overturned, there had been a push from many states to prevent telemedicine abortion. That was a big push by Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry you know, trying to get medication abortion, these medical abortion pills into the hands of women without having to see a physician. So this was several years ago. They had been doing this telemed abortion scheme, and many states had outlawed that. Texas, where I live, was one of them. They said, no, you cannot do that. You have to see a physician. Why? Well, because you need to be under a physician's care 
you could have an ectopic pregnancy and not know about it. You take these pills, your fallopian tube ruptures, you die. You potentially die. You may not know how far along you are in your pregnancy. You take these pills. You could potentially deliver a live baby. I mean, there's all kinds of complications that could happen if you take these pills or not under physician care, right? So these states go in, they ban telemed abortion. So then the FDA, they then increase the gestational limit of medication abortion from essentially nine weeks to 12 weeks. So now we're talking about fully formed babies, right? These women are delivering fully formed babies into their toilet and then having to make a decision, do I flush this baby? Do I get my hand in the toilet, take the baby out and bury it? I mean, this, we don't even know what the psychological ramifications of this are, right, for sure. women. Sure. Okay, so now Roe is overturned, and now abortion is banned in many states. So then here come all of these websites where women can go online without verifying birth date. They don't care how old you are. You could be a 13-year-old who's the victim of sex trafficking, okay? Um, They don't verify if you've had an ultrasound. They don't care how far along you are in your pregnancy. You don't have to be under any physician care. And you go online for 110 bucks. You put in your information. Could all be false information. They don't care. And they then get a prescription from another country, primarily Belgium, China, India, and they send you unregulated medication to, we don't even know what the medication is, to any address you want, right? So it's going through the U.S. Postal Service. You get the medication. It could take anywhere from two to four weeks for you to receive it. You get the medication. You take it at home. You kill your baby that way, okay? Now, the Biden administration, through our completely partisan FDA, now decided, nope, we don't want that at all. We want you being able to get the medication abortion pills through any pharmacy in the United States with a prescription that you're going to be able to get online, right? So these same entities that you've been able to get the prescription and get it, you know, over in another country— now you're going to be able to easily get the prescription for, I don't know, 20, 40 bucks, get the pills now from your local pharmacy. And now every woman's home is ultimately going to be an abortion facility. Abby, there's so much that you unpacked there. The one thing that really comes through in this is that there seems to be zero care for the quality of the woman herself. Where, where are the women's groups on this? Where's the people speaking up for women's health saying, hey, uh, women deserve to have quality medical advice from a physician that is actually aware of what they're dealing with? Well, I mean, that's, that is the question, right, Kevin? I mean, there is no care for women. We're literally going to have women bleeding out in their home. We're going to have women hemorrhaging to death. We're going to have women dying of infections because they're not being treated by doctors. And yet these women's groups, organizations like Planned Parenthood, say they care for women. They're calling this progress. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing program. The biggest news on the abortion front over the course of the last year, of course, was the Dobbs decision handed down by the Supreme Court in June, reversing the Roe v. Wade decision. But this returned, for the most part, the question of abortion to the 50 states. What reversing Roe did was to reverse that infamous 1973 Supreme Court decision that supposedly found a right to an abortion within a so-called right to privacy, neither of which, of course, are articulated in the U.S. Constitution. That was made very clear by the court's majority in the Dobbs decision last June. But there are some big changes that have vast moral consequence, and we need to notice what they are. First of all, we need to note that what was not imaginable back in 1973 is the rise of the abortion pill. 
that is abortions by taking either a medication or medications by pill. And now you need to know that more than half of all abortions in the United States happen not in an abortion clinic, but rather by means of taking a so-called abortion pill. And that's where the politics gets really intensive, because even with the Dobbs decision on the horizon, you had people on the pro-abortion side who had been working for decades not only to make such a pill available, but to make it more widely available. Just last week, the Food and Drug Administration handed down what it calls a permanent rule, that is to say an ongoing policy that allows the big pharmaceutical chains and also local brick-and-mortar pharmacies, as they're often described, to dispense mifepristone, that is to say the abortion pill. The availability of those pills at the big chains and local so-called brick-and-mortar pharmacies, that is a game-changer. What we're looking at is the absolute intensive drive on the part of the pro-abortion movement to maintain the accessibility of abortion to Americans. And furthermore, to try to make abortion by medication more and more readily available. Even, the dream is on the part of abortion advocates, to make it just an over-the-counter medication. Now, the big box chains, most importantly Walgreens and CVS, announced after the release of this permanent rule that where it would be locally legal, and that's mostly a state issue, CVS and Walgreens will train pharmacists to be ready to dispense mifepristone and to do so in accordance with the new FDA ruling. As the New York Times reported, quote, the chain CVS and Walgreens said they planned to seek certification to sell the pill mifepristone, the first pill used in the two-drug medication abortion regimen. Patients, according to the Times, quote, will still need a prescription from a certified health care provider, but the new federal action could significantly expand access to medication abortion because it allows any pharmacy that agrees to accept those prescriptions and abide by certain other criteria to dispense the pills in stores and by mail order, end quote. Now, I mentioned the Los Angeles Times because almost immediately after this new policy or permanent rule was released by the FDA, the Los Angeles Times ran a commentary piece saying, well, that's good so far as it goes, but it's not nearly far enough. It doesn't go far enough in making abortion even more widely available. Now, just from a Christian perspective, we need to note that the culture of death is insatiable. It has an insatiable desire to expand its reach. Death pressed further and further, made easier and easier. Death by pill, by the way, is one of the saddest and most tragic developments of our time. In this case, the death of an unborn child. Of course, they're going to say that this is basically an early pregnancy abortion, but we as Christians understand that doesn't change the moral equation whatsoever. The complicity of the big firms here, CVS and Walgreens, is politically predictable also in commercial terms, and the fact that at least at present they're saying they are going to participate in accordance with this new rule in the states where it is legally possible, but we understand that the legal activism is going to press further and further, more aggressively and aggressively. And of course, there is no coincidence that this rule was handed down in the midst of the Biden administration's announced intention to try to defend abortion rights and to make abortion available wherever possible. There was a day not that long ago when the pro-abortion advocate wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. Today, abortion is celebrated and pushed as a moral good, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that it's taking a toll, not just on our nation, but on the whole world. 
Here's Bob Burney from 880 AM, The Word in Columbus. If someone were to ask you, what was the leading cause of death worldwide the last four years, I think many people would say uh, heart issues. You would be wrong. COVID, you would be wrong. The flu, you would be wrong. Other infectious diseases, you would be wrong. The statistics have just come out from the organization called Worldometer, who keeps a database of causes for death worldwide. They have just released their latest report, including all of 2022. The leading cause of death in 2022 and for the last four years is abortion. Abortion. Worldometer cites a fact sheet from the World Health Organization as a source for its abortion statistics. The WHO, and I'm quoting, maintains that around 73 million induced abortions take place worldwide each year. 73 million innocent, unborn babies die every year. Coming up, Asian American students are sidelined as a result of their high test scores. It seems to be in certain areas of the country, the only state-sanctioned form of bigotry is anti-Asian bigotry. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. When I was a little black girl growing up here in Portland, that was my hope. That was my dream. Well, that familiar quote comes from the late Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963. And over the course of the past 50 to 60 years, it seemed we were making great progress until in recent years, strong performances among Asian American students became a catalyst for school districts to change things. Well, that was the case in Fairfax County, Virginia. And Virginia Attorney General Jason Mayaris launched an investigation. He was a guest of Don Crow on WAVA in the nation's capital. Tell us how your office and that of the governor first learned of these allegations. Well, we became aware shortly before Christmas, obviously, the news broke in several outlets about uh, that the leadership at Thomas Jefferson High School of Science and Technology, which is uh, widely recognized as one of the best public high schools in the country. It's a, essentially almost like a magnet school, a governor's school, um, had been holding national merit recognition from qualifying students and their family. And uh, that obviously was horrifying. We had uh, probably, I have an office of civil rights, uh, began to, to start evaluating it 
Uh, we also obviously saw that uh, Thomas Jefferson High School had changed their admissions policy in which they had essentially, you had seen a, a huge drop in Asian American enrollment at the school. Uh, we know from public information, from uh, text messages from school board members that they thought that even though Thomas Jefferson was majority minority, uh, from according to some of the school board members, uh, they had they thought they had uh, too much Asian representation. And so we were trying to determine the Virginia Human Rights Act is pretty clear. You can't discriminate on anybody because of their race and their ethnic background. There's a lot of frustration with parents there. And so, um, you know, the point that I've often uh, made is, you, you know, people are constantly talking about equity, but equity without excellence is emptiness. And it seems like if you look nationally, what we're seeing, this is why we're investigating to determine if this is happening here. But what you're seeing nationally right now is very, very similar um, what, what Jewish Americans faced in the 1920s and the 1930s. You saw a variety of academic institution and Ivy League institution that said, well, we have too many uh, Jewish American students. We're going to cap. We're going to intentionally not allow in uh, certain uh, applicants because we don't want to have too many Jewish American students. Uh, you're seeing that now at the national level in a variety of areas with Asian American students. Uh, and if it was wrong in the 1920s and the 1930s to discriminate against Jewish Americans, uh, it is wrong to do that against our Asian Americans. It seems to be in certain areas of the country, the only state-sanctioned form of bigotry is anti-Asian uh, bigotry. And so um, we have put together this investigation on the national merit issue and the admissions issue at TJ, and it seems – uh, public reports that they, the failure to uh, notify the students of the national merit commendation seemed to have been more than one high school. It seems like it is also at Langley High School and I think West Twelve High School as well. So we're trying to get to the bottom of it because it, it really has troubled so many parents, and we're going to do an investigation to get to the right answers. And as you've already alluded, it's not even local, localized to uh, Virginia or to Fairfax County or whatever. But I understand from previous conversations with folks from Pacific Legal, uh, there and you, I'm sure, are very aware of it, that this is occurring across the country. This is not a one-off, so to speak. It's a whole new move in the direction of higher education or some of the more prestigious high schools. Uh, I think they cited New York and other places. What do you know about that? Well, we've seen it nationally. We're trying to determine, and, and that's what we're going to do, the investigation and get to the answers. But we have seen this happen in other areas around the country as as uh, I, I call it woke racism. Uh, it is intentionally uh, uh, discriminating against certain uh, Americans of certain racial backgrounds because they feel like they're over, quote, overrepresented. And we do know from public reports in Fairfax that the Michelle Reed, the superintendent, hired an equity consultant, paid $455,000 for about nine months of work. That equity consultant in writing stated that you should absolutely guarantee equal outcomes and that means even if you have to treat certain students unequally. And so um, uh, it seems like with the national merit commendations, why weren't these students notified? Were they not notified because of their, uh, their, their ethnic or racial background? Because if that is the case, then that is absolutely a violation of the Virginia Human Rights Act. And so uh, that's exactly why we're trying to get to this. And, you know, I have seen some commentators say, well, this isn't that big of a deal. Well, try to tell that to the parent of a student. Yeah. There's 1.5 million American seniors today. This only goes to 50,000 of them. That's the top 3% nationwide. And uh, it matters, real dollars and cents. Uh, Liberty University gives full scholarship, a full full-right scholarship to anybody who receives a national merit commendation. 
And so you're talking collectively, I think tuition at Liberty is 20 some thousand dollars a year. You're talking anywhere between 90 to $100,000 of benefit. Uh, somebody who comes from a family, an immigrant family, I came, my mother fled Cuba with nothing. I know paying for college is, is stressful of getting into college. And if you're a child and you could have applied and gotten a scholarship and you were simply never notified, that's just tragic because sometimes that the finances can determine uh, whether you're able to go to school or not and, and what kind of debt level you have when you graduate. And I just think that those are the type of issues that I think Virginia families are, are concerned about. And that's why we're doing the investigation to get some answers. And how could a student or the parents of a student who really didn't merit the award feel better by being given one in place of someone who actually did? In other words, uh, I cited at the outset Azra Namani's comment that this was done so as not to hurt the feelings of students who didn't earn the award. To me, that is a real uh, pejorative as well against that, that student who may not have performed as well but they realize it's a pyrrhic victory, so to speak. They really didn't earn it. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw the news report and I saw that quote and uh, definitely raised some eyebrows that it gets tapped you know, nationally. I think what you're seeing is I, I kind of refer to it as a war on merit. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, we want every American to be able to achieve and also be rewarded for their achievements. And I think part of the frustration that I think a lot of parents have had is a lot of the same schools that were not notifying their their children for national merit commendations were also using the fact that they've won national merit awards in their own marketing, in their own push for, you know, Thomas Jefferson was uh, ranked the number one high school in the country. They're using the number of students that have, have been recognized by the national merit um, uh, for either as a finalist, semi-finalist, or accommodation. And so they're using that special recognition to highlight themselves, but they're not allowing, presumably, the students to highlight it uh, on their own applications. And as I referenced, for potential college scholarships that could save them tens upon thousands of dollars in in long-term debt. And so uh, it's a troubling issue. Um, You know, every year the General Assembly in Richmond appropriates money for different governor's schools, including Thomas Jefferson. And so, um, you know, we have a right to be able to investigate what is happening and get an answer and see, again, if there's any violation of the Virginia Human Rights Act. Final question or two, uh, what recourse will or may be sought by your office if these allegations and turn out to be substantiated? What kind of punitive action may be taken against TJ? The proper procedure in any civil rights investigation is you put them on put them on notice. You see if you can't reach a resolution. If you can't reach a resolution, then um, you you seek you know a legal remedy in court. Uh, my hope is that we first find out what happened, get to those answers, ask those hard questions. Uh, I told my told my team that's part of the investigation here. The same words I've said uh, to my team that's been part of every investigation out of my office. Uh, I want you to be fearless and I want you to be deliberate. Coming up. This is not okay. You can't racially discriminate against children in what school they get to go to. More on race preferences aimed to hurt Asian Americans when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. 
Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax County, Virginia, has been at the center of much of the news coverage of what's become anti-Asian bias. Sadly, this news reflects a bolder mindset and more aggressive activism that began years ago. Don Crow turned to Aaron Wilcox of the Pacific Legal Foundation. What can you tell us about the uh, background of this that goes back, I guess, perhaps since 2021? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, In 2021, Pacific Legal Foundation joined with a group of parents of TJ students um, called the Coalition for TJ um, to sue Fairfax County Public Schools because they had changed the admissions policy for TJ um, so that it made it much harder for Asian American kids to get into the school. Um, And so, you know, it discriminates um, against them based on their race. And so, Um, We have a lawsuit in federal court. Um, We won at the district court level and are right now up on appeal in the appellate court in Richmond. Um, But, yeah, I I wish I could say that (laughs) this latest shenanigans were kind of the first time that Fairfax County Schools has gone after kids because of their race. But it's really just a pattern of behavior there. Keep on going. Well, how did it come to light in this case? What triggered this particular uh, latest investigation that now the governor's involved with? Yes, a, uh, a mother of a TJ uh, senior was wondering what had happened when her student took the PSAT, um, and he never heard his results. Um, and it turns out that her son scored in the top 3% of all kids in the nation, um, and that made him eligible for scholarships and would have helped him on his college applications, but uh, TJ never notified him of his score. And um, they said they did it when she asked. They said they did it because, you know, they didn't want other kids to feel bad, that they had not done that well, and they wanted everyone to be equal. And uh, meanwhile, you know, her kid, and it turns out 131 other students at TJ this year, you know, didn't get that notification and missed out on those opportunities. Now, as I understand it, Virginia and 15 other states have filed an amicus brief uh, supporting your actions and the coalition for TJ. Uh, What more can you tell us about how that's uh, proceeding? Um, Yes, that is a wonderful support to have. Um, That was a friend of the court recently, amicus brief that was filed in the um, district court and the appellate court for us. And it's the state standing behind Virginia and saying, this is not okay. You can't racially discriminate against children in what school they get to go to. And, um, you know, it sends a good warning in their states because this is not just happening in Thomas Jefferson or in Fairfax County. You know, it can happen all over the country, and that is a strong message that that will not be tolerated. Well, on that latter point, uh, are there other anecdotal cases of it happening in other parts of the country? Of course, as we've already said at the outset, TJ is one of the most prestigious, uh, one of the most desirable schools, as I understand it, in the entire country. But are there other places where this is actually happening as well? There are, unfortunately. It's happened in New York City with some of their prestigious high schools. Um, It's happening in Boston. It's happening just up in Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, And it's happened out in San Francisco at Lowell High School, which is kind of one of their shining star schools like TJ is in Virginia. Um, And who knows where else? We're hearing from parents every day who are upset and concerned that the schools are, 
you know, singling out their kids, not because of their talent or their skills or their abilities, but because of their skin color. I understand also that uh, text messages have been discovered uh, being exchanged between school board members indicating they're fully aware of what they're doing, as a matter of fact. And uh, it's really uh, replacing a legitimate admissions policy with a color, uh, uh, I should say, colorblind admissions test with the race-conscious uh, lottery systems, what it turns out to be. Uh, is there merit to that accusation that Texas text messages have been discovered? Oh, yes, absolutely. As in the course of the lawsuits, um, we did. We got our hands on text messages that board members sent each other as well as emails. And, you know, even though this school district defended itself by saying, you know, look, this new TJ policy, it doesn't mention race. Nobody looks at the race of a student. Uh, we were able to read those text messages and see that, yes, that was absolutely what was on these school board members' minds when they were changing this policy. They knew it was coming after and targeting Asian American kids, and they knew that they were trying to, you know, racially balance TJ and pick out kids who got in based on what their skin color is. So that made a huge difference and, you know, also helped tell the um, and show the Virginia Attorney General um, that this was an issue that needed to be taken seriously. And it's part of what's informing, you know, their investigations now. So it's really played a large role. Coming up. There is not a parent among us who does not understand the rightful emotion of arising to defend their children and to dispense with these characters immediately and forcefully. Alistair Begg, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The Apostle Peter, in the second chapter of his second epistle, offered a strong warning. He wrote, To those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt passion and despise authority, reckless, self-centered, they speak abusively of angelic majesties without trembling. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you. Peter is bold and unflinching. Our friend Alistair Begg has been preaching through 2 Peter in his daily radio program, Truth for Life. His message, Peter's message, is as poignant today as the day Peter penned the words. Here's Alistair. The whole theme of 2 Peter is essentially a warning. It's a warning on the part of uh, Peter, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, about false teachers who are introducing destructive heresies. And this false teaching and destructive heresy obviously was prevalent in the immediate context to which Peter wrote historically. But in the wonderful way in which the Bible speaks to every passing generation, we discover, albeit with sadness, that the kind of nonsense that was pervasive at the time of the writing of this letter 
is something that is known to us even today. And what he seems to be addressing is a mixture of skepticism and immorality. And they were skeptical about the notion of the return of Jesus. They were skeptical about the notion of the judgment of God. And when that begins to creep into uh, the mindset of men and women, then moral laxity and immorality will almost inevitably follow. And Peter is addressing that. He then goes on in verse 10, and this is where we pick it up, to say this is actually especially true of these individuals who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and who despise authority. Now, if you notice his terminology as he describes these individuals in verse 12, brute beasts, uh, he describes them in verse 13 as blots and blemishes, uh, accursed uh, brood of individuals at the end of verse 14. You find yourself reading and, and saying, don't soft-pedal this, Peter. Tell us exactly how you're feeling about these, these folks. It is, it is tremendously powerful, isn't it? Now, just in case we never get to the end of this, let me import the end to the beginning, so to give a, a broader context. When you read this for a moment, and when we go through this study, you'll find yourself, as I have found myself, recoiling at moments from what's going on. Does he have to be so graphic? Does he have to be so forceful? Does he have to be so condemnatory in his judgment? But if you think in parental terms and imagine individuals moving amongst your children, think of your daughters in their tenderness, think of your sons in their growing years, If you imagine people moving amongst your children, drawing them away, teaching them insidious lies, introducing them to filthy practices, there is not a parent among us who does not understand the rightful emotion of arising to defend their children and to dispense with these characters immediately and forcefully. Now, this, you see, is the responsibility of the shepherd of the souls. And Peter is the shepherd of this little group of sheep. And all of these wolves are moving amongst his sheep. And so he is dealing with them in this very striking fashion. Now, I want to move as quickly through it as I can without trying to skip anything. But you will notice that the slander of these individuals knows no limits at all that he says in verse 12 that their blasphemy is frankly unconstrained. They blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They don't exercise the angelic restraint to which he refers there in verse 11. They choose instead to be creatures of instinct. They neglect rational thought. They proceed purely on the basis of sexual and sensual indulgence. And verse 13, in the end, like beasts, they're going to be put down. Now, this kind of individual, and remember what, you're, what we're describing here, are men living in the first century in the company of their wives, with their brother-in-law coming over for tea, with their parents concerned about their well-being and their coming and going, Individuals with real souls who have slowly but surely turned their backs on all that represents truth and loveliness and goodness 
And they find themselves now in the most dreadful of predicaments. William Barclay says, For a while, such an individual may enjoy what he calls pleasure, but in the end, he ruins his health, wrecks his constitution, destroys his mind and character, and begins his experience of hell while he is still on the earth. Verse 13, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done, or they shall in their destruction be destroyed. As they play the slot machines of life, they anticipate that they can beat the odds, but in the end, they're going to be robbed and not paid. Now, let me just say a word in passing. Let's take our first pause and say, whoa. The mindset in which all of us move from day to day is so coerced by the worldview of our contemporary culture that we have now come to the conclusion that no one is justified in speaking like this about anyone. Nobody is allowed to say such things. And anyone who would pronounce such judgment on any group of people or on any circumstances must themselves somehow or another be disengaged from their senses, or at least they are disengaged from contemporary thought forms and mores. And this, I think, is one of the great challenges that we're now going to face in the 21st century. If we're going to hold true for what the Bible says, if we're going to stand for righteousness and for truth, then we are increasingly going to be on the receiving end of that kind of response. You people are bigoted. You people are this. You people are that. You know, do you want people to like you in the immediacy and essentially despise you in eternity? Or would you rather have them despise you now for your straightforwardness and rejoice with you in eternity? In other words, do you have the courage to be a biblical Christian? Coming up... The promises of the Bible are real promises, but the warnings of the Bible are real warnings. A few more minutes from Alistair Begg, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we reflect on the times and the seasons that we're living through, I hope Alistair Begg's challenge has been helpful. At the end of the day, what's most important is not whether we're successful or whether we're widely accepted. It's important that we are counted faithful. Let's pick up with Alistair Begg from his recent broadcast on Truth For Life. The thing that should absolutely stand us up on our heels about studying 2 Peter is this. 2 Peter is not about them. Second Peter is about me. You see, just go to the very end of the book and look. What is he saying at the end of chapter 3? Therefore, he says, dear friends, my friends, you know this stuff. But listen, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. The promises of the Bible are real promises, but the warnings of the Bible are real warnings. They left the straight way. And so who are these people? Well, he describes them in the closing paragraph, verse 17. What are their characteristics? Well, first of all, they're empty. 
They come and go. They don't have any settled principles or convictions. Springs without water, mist driven by a storm. Uh, Dick Lucas, in a wonderfully characteristic sentence or two, says, you have only to visit a second-hand theological bookshop with its piles of unsaleable rubbish once the latest thing in theological audacity to see the force of this. There are clouds of obscure, unhelpful nonsense that is represented in their teaching, simply cast unhelpful shadows. But the shadows they cast is as nothing compared to the darkness which awaits them. The mouth-empty words, which are also boastful words, they're big, they sound ponderous, they appeal to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, and they're particularly strong with people who are just trying to extricate themselves from the realm of paganism. And what they were doing in verse 19 is that they were promising freedom. You see, this is the thing. You have to be very, very careful. It's not these individuals are saying, if you come to our study, you're going to get involved in deep darkness. You will become a blot and a blemish. You will be destroyed. And No, no. They say, if you come and join us, you can get away from that Parkside nonsense. You know, it's people who say what they're saying about the Bible and Martin Luther and all of that jazz. Get away from that. We, we can give you freedom over here. He says, well, they promised freedom, but they're slaves of depravity. And then it sounds as though Peter had been listening to Jesus, doesn't it? For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. You remember when Jesus says to the Pharisees, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Peter must have made a note of that in the back of his mind. He said, I'll use that someday. And there here he puts it in, in his second letter. A man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to ChristianOutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan, Mike Cook, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. She expected the Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.